welcome again to Deep Run Church Online. I'm Brian LoPiccolo, broadcasting to you from my office right off of Main Street in Westminster, Maryland. It's good to see you all again. I guess we're settling into a new version of normal now, at least for a while. And uh, while we can't be together, it is really good that we can use technology uh, to connect with each other in ways like this. So today's scripture reading is taken from uh, Matthew chapter 5. We've been working through the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount uh, for a few months as a church. And today's scripture reading is Matthew chapter 5 and just verse 48 for today. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the Beatitudes and, and all of Matthew chapter 5, uh, the first section of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, all of it, all that we've read so far, builds up to this one verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, so many times in my life, that verse has sounded like the most intimidating, frightening passage in the Bible. You must be perfect. What, what was Jesus calling people to be there? Is he trying to compare us to God? You begin thinking, well, how can I expect to be perfect as God is perfect? Am I reading this wrong? Was Jesus speaking literally? Uh, what's the point of such a statement? Well, if, if you're listening in and, and you're not a Christian, you're, you're, you're not a believer, I'm uh, glad that you're listening and uh, want to try and approach it just for a second from your perspective. Uh, you may be thinking, this seems like more of that moralistic talk, that, that, uh, that pious, self-righteous nonsense of, of people uh, trying uh, to be better, trying to be holy, uh, trying to dupe themselves into thinking uh, that they can be better than other people, trying to dupe other people into thinking uh, that they have to be a certain way. Uh, now, I, I, would, I would agree with you uh, that some religious people, maybe many religious people, uh, portray that, that type of a mentality. So I totally hear your concern, and, and I would agree with you if that's what Jesus meant. It's not what he meant. It's often said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? Because we imitate the people that we admire. So small children uh, tend to imitate their parents, right? So small, small kids say that uh, when they grow up, they want to be like mommy or they want to be like daddy. Uh, young artists even mimic their heroes very closely uh, before they develop uh, an artist, uh, an artistic sense of their own. Before they develop their own style, they, they copy, they, they mimic the styles of their heroes. Uh, and that's, that's a form of praise. That's, that's a form of flattery and admiration. Uh, so, so if you go to my parents' house to this day, you will find on their walls Bob Ross-like oil paintings uh, that, that I created when I was a kid because I loved Bob Ross and I wanted to paint like him and I wanted to live in those paintings that he created. Imitation is the sincerest 
form of flattery. Don't judge, judge me for that. I'm just saying. But, but mimicking people, it, it works the opposite way also, right? Have you ever heard one of your siblings say, you're just like dad. You're just like mom when you do that. Or maybe you've said to your spouse, or maybe you've heard these words from your spouse, you are just like your parents. You are just like your family. And they don't mean that, they don't mean that in, in a congratulatory way. It's not a compliment, right? Look, imitation says a lot about who you want to be, but imitation also says a lot about who you already are. And God's desire, this is what Christianity teaches, God's desire is that we become most like the only one who's worth imitating. And as I unpack what that statement means, I want to talk to you about the meaning of this word perfection that we see in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. The meaning of perfection and the pursuit of of this perfection that Jesus is talking about. And finally, the access to the perfection that Jesus is talking about. So the meaning of this, the pursuit of this, and the only access to the type of perfection that Jesus seemed to think was of the utmost importance. Now, the meaning of this perfection that Jesus is talking about really has to do with wholeness. Uh, to quote uh, one New Testament scholar, wholeness. He's talking about a wholeness of life. So when Jesus said this, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, he was slightly tweaking an Old Testament concept taken from a few passages, but specifically Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, where, where God said to the ancient Israelites, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now what Jesus did, and, and what Matthew in his gospel is portraying here, is a slight twist on that, that phrase by using not the word holy, but the word perfect. Now the Greek word there in Matthew's gospel for perfect, it, it meant more than just perfection. It meant to be mature. It meant fullness. It meant to be complete. It even meant, as the New Testament, uh, New Testament scholar Jonathan Pennington, whose work on the Sermon on the Mount is, is, is something that I'm relying on heavily for my thematic progression through this series, Jonathan Pennington uh, basically insists that what Jesus is getting at with this word perfection is wholeness, to be whole, to be a complete person, not lacking in anything. So for example, later on in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 19, a rich young man approaches Jesus and says to Jesus, what do I have to do? What's, what's the one good thing I need to do to get into heaven? And Jesus said, well, have you, do you know all the commandments? Have, have you done the Ten Commandments? And, and the man said, well, yeah, yeah, I've done all of those things. And so then Jesus responds, well, um, here's... Here's what you lack. And he tells him, these are a few other things you need to do. Give up, sell everything that you have and, and follow me. Right? Because the young man had asked Jesus, what do I still lack? Right? Um, and so Jesus said, and I'll quote him exactly. He said, 
if you would be perfect, there's the word again, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Or uh, Jesus' brother, James, in his letter, James chapter 1, verse 4, James says, look, uh, if you are experiencing trials, that's a good thing. This is why it's a good thing. He basically says, trials come into your life, and I'm quoting him now, that you may be perfect. There's the word again. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Or the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul said, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature, it's the same word again, those of us who are mature should think this way. So really, uh, think less of moral perfection and think more of progressing towards something, okay? So Jesus is not saying you must be sinless as your heavenly Father is sinless, or you must be all-knowing, you must be all-powerful, you must be omnipresent as God is all of these things. Perhaps this passage frightens people so much because we jump immediately to the thought of moral perfection. God cares very much about moral perfection, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Do you remember the sixth beatitude? Blessed are what? The pure in heart. And when he had talked about earlier, a few months ago, what, what it means to be pure in heart. Again, as Jonathan Pennington says, to be pure in heart is to be singular in who you are, to be consistent, to be thorough, to be true outside and inside, to be whole like God is, consistent. So think less of moral perfection and think more of progress, progress toward maturity, progress toward wholeness. And this idea of, of progressing toward maturity, it actually circles us back uh, to what I originally said about imitation. We pursue this perfection that Jesus is talking about by imitating someone. I mean, think about it. You imitate somebody because you're not yet like them, but you want to become like them, right? So Jesus, if, if you go back to uh, uh, the earlier parts of Matthew chapter 5, uh, you remember that Jesus has been describing a greater righteousness, a righteousness, he says, that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. He is saying that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to possess a greater righteousness than the type of righteousness that the best of worldly religion offers us. And he gave us six illustrations of that greater righteousness that he says you need in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so this is a really brief recap of most of Matthew chapter five. Jesus basically said, don't harbor anger and hatred in your heart so that you will do things like murder. Um, but instead, forgive people and reconcile with them. Uh, or don't feed your inward lusts, lusts that lead to acts like adultery. Uh, but, but pursue purity inwardly, pursue purity 
by killing the ungodly desires uh, that creep up in you. Don't take your marriage commitment lightly, Jesus said, but pursue faithfulness in your marriage. Don't make tentative promises that you may not keep. Simply honor your word with actions that back up your words. Or don't retaliate for harms done to you, but pursue mercy. Pursue, pursue mercy instead of vengeance. And finally, don't hate your enemies. Love your enemies. Love your enemies with a servant's heart. And when you look at all of this, when you look at everything that Jesus has been saying, who's like this? Who does all of this? Who is this consistently, outwardly and inwardly? Who forgives their enemies? Who is truly pure and consistent? Who is faithful in his marriage? Who is trustworthy by keeping all of his promises? Who is merciful to those who curse him and hate him and distrust him and abuse him? Who loves his enemies? God. God, God does all of this consistently. So this call to perfection, this call to wholeness, is really a call to imitate God. Those who possess this greater righteousness that Jesus has been talking about are the people who desire to imitate God. The true Christian aims, seeks, hungers, and thirsts to grow up to be like their Heavenly Father. So the true Christian is, is distinguished from everybody else in this world uh, in these ways. The true Christian doesn't allow his anger to rule him, but humbles himself and learns to forgive and practices reconciliation. The, the, the true Christian does not sway to cultural definitions of sexuality but pursues God's sexual ethic. Uh, Christians take marriage seriously. They don't take marriage lightly, but as far as it is possible, living in a broken world, living with broken people, Christians protect marriages. Uh, Christians don't make empty promises that they don't intend to keep. Christians build trust as their actions match their words. Christians don't respond in kind to meanness and to injustice. Christians, knowing that they live in a broken world, Christians are prepared for these things and they bear them patiently. Christians don't cancel people out of their lives. Christians love their adversaries. Christians pray for their adversaries. Christians find ways to serve their enemies. So in all of these ways, do the people you live with see these qualities in you on a routine basis? Uh, not to perfection, but do people know this about you, where you work, your employees, or those you work for or work with? Do they see these things about you? In your relationships, do people notice this? In your politics, do people notice these qualities? The Christian aims to imitate God's character. And that's 
That's the perfection that Jesus is, is talking about. The desire to imitate God. But who do you spend most of your time and energy imitating? Ask yourself that this week. Who do I spend the bulk of my time, exertion of my energy, trying to imitate? Who do I spend most of my time imitating without even realizing it? You might be thinking, well, certainly not God. I mean, I, I couldn't possibly even begin to imitate him. Yeah and no. Um, Jesus seemed to think that you could. Jesus seemed to think that you should imitate God. As you read the Sermon on the Mount, it becomes abundantly clear that Jesus seemed to think that the most important aspect of living the human life is being imitators of God. And so here we come to it. The Christian is the only type of person who wants to imitate God, who wants to mimic God. The preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote that when he was commenting on this passage, uh, he said, people's natural motivation uh, to do good, people's natural motivation to do good things um, really comes from a sense of obligation. And what he meant by obligation is you do things because deep down you believe you have to do them. Not because you want to do them, but you ultimately think you just have to do them. And I think he was right. And I think he was right because, think about it, don't you keep tabs? Don't you keep tabs on what you've done? Don't you keep tabs on what others have done and then respond appropriately or in kind or because of what they've done or haven't done or what you've done or what you have not done? Don't you keep tabs on what people owe you? Don't you keep tabs on what you owe other people? Don't you keep tabs on what you believe God owes you because of what you've done and how you've lived? And then tragedies hit. You have to deal with unemployment, uh, change in pay grade, loss of goods or property, loss of loved ones. You have to deal with trauma or abuse or victimization. You have to deal with conflict, war, sickness, pandemics. Tragedy hits. And, and, and you've made the presumption that God owes you something. You've made the presumption that God has owed you something for the way you have always tried to live and for the way that you have always tried to act. And you think he owes you. And you think you don't deserve what you have to deal with. You think you deserve better. You think your people or your team or your family deserves better. And not only do you make presumptions about what God owes you because of what you've done, but you also make judgments on other people for what they've done or have not done. You make judgments about what other people owe you, or, or if they don't owe you anything, you make judgment calls about what people should do or should have done. And so you end up, and I end up, condemning other people 
for not being like us. You condemn other people for not being like you or for not imitating your heroes. You even condemn yourself for not being like your heroes. You even condemn yourself for not living up to an image that you have of what you want to be. And frankly, uh, to you churchgoers, this is why many unbelievers are turned off by a bunch of moralists who are always pointing out the moral imperfections of everybody else. Because you know what? People don't think they owe you anything. And that's just really annoying and obnoxious. But non-believers, respectfully, you do this too. You have standards. You have your own moral code about how people should live and how people should act and what people should do. And you judge people. You ignore people also. You cancel people. You bully people who don't subscribe to your priorities. And we're seeing this uh, at a time of crisis now more than ever on the Internet, in politics, in the media, people judging one another for what they should be doing, for what they should have done. That's not in alignment with their own moral code. And look, my point is not to be disrespectful to anybody. My point is to say we all do this. Believers, skeptics, those who are religious, those who are secular, we all, we all do this. We all condemn other people for not imitating our own standards. And, and, and here's the thing that we all have in common. God is not in the equation. Nobody's imitating him. We're all imitating glorified versions of ourselves and then judging one another when we fail to live up. And that just sounds like a really stressful, unhappy way to live our lives. The kind of perfection that Jesus is talking about is attainable. But it's attainable through only one access point, only one point of entry. It's through the door into the household of the family of God. Remember what I had said earlier, uh, that imitation says a lot about who you already are. Who you mimic really says something about who you already are. Now, isn't it generally true uh, that children simply want to be like their parents, right? For better or for worse, children simply mimic and imitate and copy their parents, Once again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on this passage, he said, notice what Jesus is doing. He is not saying, you therefore must be perfect as God in heaven is perfect. He didn't say that. And by the way, that should petrify you because you cannot do that. No, No, he said, this is what Jesus said. Listen, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus used the word Father 17 times in this sermon alone in just three chapters of Matthew's gospel. 17 times the word Father appears. Look, we basically know this. Little children 
really only know their parents. They haven't been exposed to much in the world. They've been exposed to their family. They've been exposed to their parents. And, and, and for better or worse, they imitate their parents. Now, in most healthy situations, why does a child imitate mommy or daddy? Because of nearness, because of intimacy, because of love. Love changes everything. As, as the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 3 amazingly puts it, he wrote, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. This is profound. Not enemies, not servants, children of God. John went on to say, We're called children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, meaning Jesus, when he appears, check this out, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You see, what changes your story is a change in status. God has to adopt you. He has to issue the adoption papers on your behalf. And once you're a child of God, you become a lover of God. And once you become a lover of God, you immediately become, by instinct, by the sheer joy of it, you become an imitator of God. Once a child, then a lover. And once a lover, you become an imitator of God. And we know this is true because of how Jesus describes the people that will enter the kingdom of heaven. If you go, if you fast forward in Matthew's gospel to Matthew chapter 25, uh, Jesus offers this parable. Uh, it's the parable of the sheep and the goats. And, and to summarize it, he basically says, look, when I return, I am going to divide all of humanity like sheep and goats. Uh, uh, I'm going to divide humanity into those people who love me and have done my will and those people who do not love me and have not done my will. Uh, and he basically he, he says, I'm going to come to the sheep and I'm going to say, inherit the kingdom that has been prepared for you before the foundation of the world because when I was, when I was sick, uh, you took care of me when I was in prison. You visited me when I was naked. You clothed me when I was hungry. You fed me. You did all of these things for me. And, and what's so interesting, I think, is the response that the righteous give him. Matthew chapter 5, verse, beginning in verse 37, Jesus says, Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you? When were you thirsty and we gave you something to drink? When were you a stranger and we welcomed you? When were you naked and we clothed you? When were you sick or in prison and, and we visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The point I'm trying to make here by, by sharing just a part of that parable is this. The, the point behind the question that the righteous ask him is this, that they weren't keeping tabs on the good that they were doing. 
They weren't keeping a record of the good things that they had done. They were just doing them instinctively, doing them naturally, doing them joyfully, so that they didn't even remember the things that Jesus had remembered. Love doesn't do that. Love, love not only keeps no record of wrongs, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, but love doesn't keep tabs on the good things that you do for other people expecting something in return, living a life of obligation. No, no, love doesn't do that. And the proof that love doesn't do that is how God has shown us that he loves us. Again, 1 John chapter 4, but, but um, yeah, 1 John chapter 4, but verses 9 through 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Through him, we might live. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a, a propitiation for our sins. You see, Jesus lived not out of obligation, but out of love. Jesus lived like a child. Jesus, the man, the son of God, lived all his days on earth like a child. So to be perfect, friends, to be whole, is really to imitate Jesus, who said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Christ imitated the Father perfectly. And so your only hope is to find your identity in him. Your only hope is to hide in Christ's shadow, to hide within his righteousness. That's the greater righteousness. That's how you become a child of God. That's how you become a lover of God. And that is how you become an imitator of God, doing his will simply because you love him and you want to imitate him, not because you're scared of him and are trying to keep tabs on whether you're living up to his standards. So when the Christian suffers adversity, the Christian doesn't assume that God is punishing her. The Christian doesn't assume that God is cursing him. On the contrary, Christians remember that troubles and persecutions are not only going to happen in this life, but troubles and persecutions are the very proof that they bear the family resemblance, that they're growing up to be like Jesus, that they're imitating their Father who is in heaven. So the Christian, in times of suffering and in times of weakness, actually, believe it or not, contrary to popular opinion, rejoices. Christians, Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, flourish. Not only in good times, but in trials. Christians flourish because they know, especially in the trials and in the persecutions, the Christian knows they're imitating their Father in heaven. In heaven. They're imitating Jesus, their Lord, who died because he loved them. Now you love him in return. God's desire is that we become like the one who is truly worth imitating, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who brings us in to a family relationship with God as our Father. If you're a Christian, realize you, you have a new spiritual genetic code. Spiritually speaking, you have a new DNA. 
start imitating the family resemblance. Start living like and acting like the Lord Jesus and imitate your heavenly father. There are people in your life that may be worth imitating, but imitate Jesus the most. Let him define how you imitate and who you imitate. And friend, if you're watching, if you're listening, and if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, now is the time. Now is the time to reconsider your life and reconsider your priorities and reconsider why you do the good that you do. Receive God's adoption. The New Testament calls it sonship. Receive the gift of God's childlike status. Become a child through his son, Jesus Christ, and once and for all, leave the life of an orphan behind. Leave behind the daily routine of always being unsure if you've checked all the boxes, if you've fulfilled all of your obligations. Leave an orphan's life of always wondering, wondering if you've done a good enough job keeping tabs, keeping tabs on the good that you've done, keeping tabs on other people for the ways that they have frustrated you. And live at peace. Be at rest, even in your adversity. Be at rest in the love of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our great God, we praise you uh, that we do not have to fear you in an unhealthy way, that we do not have to be petrified, that we cannot live perfectly according to your moral expectations. Lord, we praise you that Jesus did. So we want to give up our act. We want to give up our charade. We want to trust in his perfection. And we want to imitate him. And we want to be found in him. We don't want to be found um, not having fulfilled all of our obligations. Father, we never will. We want to be found in Christ. We want to be found in the righteousness and the love and the blessedness of the one who perfectly imitated you and won our salvation by dying in our place on the cross and rising from the dead. Father, give us hope that we no longer have to live like orphans before you, but we can live like your blessed sons and daughters. Father, no longer out of obligation, but out of a sense of love for you who loved us first. Help us to do good simply because it is our joy to be like our Lord Jesus Christ so that he comes to us one day and says, receive the kingdom that's been prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. And Father, may it be our joy when the Lord Jesus shows us the ways in our lives that we loved him by serving our neighbors, by blessing our enemies. May we have his joy when we look back and see that our lives, even when we didn't realize it, were naturally, instinctively reflecting your priorities because of your love for us and our love for you. Lord, may it be so in the name of our, Jesus, in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.